Whether you're taking a rip down the lease road in your jacked-up truck or flying first class to Houston, Texas, it's time to sit back and relax for another exciting episode of Oil & Gas Onshore. This episode is brought to you by Tendeka, a global specialist in advanced completions and production solutions for the oil and gas industry. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Justin Gauthier. Welcome to this week's episode. We're here at the new and improved Canon with Trent Jacobs, digital editor at Society of Petroleum Engineers. Trent, welcome to the show, my man. Hey, thanks for having me, Justin. Absolutely. And a huge shout out to Elizabeth Camber for making the introduction for us. So how do you actually know Elizabeth? I met Elizabeth actually not that long ago, and she reached out to me. I, I write for the Journal of Petroleum Technology and wrote about a, a topic that's very near and dear to her heart. So Which is which one? Which is Shale EOR okay. and sort of just a market overview, technical review sort of what's been happening in that space for the last year or so. And she reached out to me. We had lunch. We wrapped about that topic for for a while. Then we actually met back in Denver, wrapped a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And then last week, I got a, a note in my inbox with uh, UCC Dan. And she <laughs> yeah. asked me if I wanted to come in here and, and talk a little bit more. So perfect. So yeah, I'm here. Awesome. Well, I certainly appreciate you responding to my request. And obviously, she made the introduction. So shout out to Elizabeth. Before we get going into the weeds, I just want to ask the listeners, if you have a few minutes, please support the show and subscribe. Do me a huge favor and take a few minutes to leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to. Any feedback is welcome and appreciated, good or bad. Also, if you feel like you have a great story, idea for a show, or if you simply just have any questions, hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on there most days. So I feel, uh, you know, I, I feel honored for a lot of people to hit me up, especially young folks coming out of school, you know, help spread the knowledge and, you know, help expose different opportunities within the oil and gas industry and just different organizations and different things that you can become a part of. So certainly if you have any questions or if you're still, you know, trying to navigate the waters, you're young, eager to please just hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm always willing to help point you in the right direction any way I can. So Trent, what was life like before getting into the oil field? You got a pretty lengthy, you know, past with regards to SPE and you've been heavily involved with that, but like what, what before then, I mean, how did you get into this circus? Yeah, that's actually kind of a long and windy road, but yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it, you know, I always was sort of a as a kid a news junkie, and so I was always fascinated with just you know geopolitics and and business news and, and those sort of things, and so uh, after college, I decided that you know I wanted to be a journalist, and so my first assignment I actually gave to myself sort of and moved to Haiti and oh, became wow. a freelance journalist in Haiti for for almost 2 years. And, so why Haiti? You know, it was actually a family business. So my brother was a journalist and he was was getting an assignment with the Associated Press there. So we met at a coffee shop and it's like, you know, do you want to come with me? And so I got a camera, I actually started as a video journalist. Okay. Got a camera, got some classes on how to actually operate a camera and eagerly joined my brother in Port-au-Prince. This is maybe, I think, 2006. Okay. And so it was, a, it was an you know, amazing experience, and I got a lot of work. Didn't make a lot of money, but got plenty of work because I was, I was essentially the only freelance journalist who spoke English in the country so, and lived there full-time. So when people like CNN or the Weather Channel or CBC in Canada or BBC needed somebody, we, we were called stringers. Okay. Uh, when they needed somebody like a freelancer, they would call a journalist and you know my name would get tossed around. It's a very small circle there. So, oh, no so yeah, I kind of huh. broke in as a cub reporter in a uh, pretty extreme environment. <laughs> no but kidding. But it was a lot of fun. And I moved shortly after... I moved to sort of the opposite end of the uh, Caribbean in terms of like uh, political stability to to the place called the Cayman Islands. Yeah, and was and it became my that's where I got my newspaper experience was working in the capital city there, and met my wife uh, on vacation and 
She was from New York City and I wanted to move back to the United States. So I actually moved about 100 miles north of here yeah. to a place called Nacogdoches. Yeah. And a small town, oldest town in Texas is the claim to fame. Yeah. And my wife went to school there while I was a newspaper journalist there for about a year and a half. Okay. And so to button this all up, I'm sitting there, I'm a newspaper journalist and I'm loving it. I was an education reporter, but I really sort of moonlighted as an investigative reporter while I was there, you know, doing FOI requests, freedom of information requests on like, you know, school records and and different kinds of things to, to see if everybody was doing what they were supposed to be doing. And, you know, I read about this thing in the Houston Chronicle called the Eagle for Chale. Yes. And I had never, never heard of it, but my dad was in the business his whole, his whole career. And I looked at my, and I grew up here in Houston. And so I looked at my wife, I came home one day and I said, you know, they found oil. And, you know, literally I was like, you know, and, you know, this might, like I said, my, my New York city raised wife is like, what, you know, <laughs> who, who found oil where? And I said, not far from Houston, they, yeah. you know? And so I told her, I said, you know, I know one thing about Houston, if there's going to be an oil boom, there's going to be a lot of jobs. And I had never had any interest in the business, but I'd been a broke journalist for a little while. Sure. And so, so my horizons were expanded and I got a U-Haul and we moved to Texas and I eventually got into the communications department of a company not far from where we're sitting right now called Helix Energy. Oh yeah. And got in there right after they had done a lot of work on the Macondo oil spill mm -hmm. and essentially what their role was, was to contain the oil spill. And after that well was killed in the Gulf of Mexico, they had essentially developed an ad hoc subsea oil spill containment system. And so for uh, two and a half years, I got to work on that as far as the marketing campaign and trying to explain that to the public and to the independents who we were selling it to. Because if you remember, there's a moratorium after yep. Macondo and the president in the White House said, you can't go back to the deep water unless you have a system that can contain oil spills. So this system was the first to be approved and got all the independents back to drilling. Right, right. So, you know, long story short, that uh, that led me back into journalism with the Journal of Petroleum Technology, which is the flagship magazine of the Society of Petroleum Engineers. And I've been there since 2013 with a short stint in consulting in between. Makes sense. So backing up a little bit, I mean, tell us a little bit about, like, what was the biggest takeaway with working over in Haiti as a, you know, journalist? You know, obviously you said a little bit, you know, scraping to get by, being a freelancer, but that, to me, that that would have really helped set up the fundamentals and sort of the framework to, to be able to succeed in what you're doing now. I mean, do you, is there a lot of takeaways that you learned by being over there? Yeah. I mean, I think you have to, in general, if you're coming into this business as an outsider, and like I said, you know, my, my dad grew up or I grew up, you know, with my dad in the business, he was in technology consulting for my entire life pretty much. And, but I never, I osmotically or through osmosis, I never got any of that. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was completely sort of naive to what oil and gas was. But going into like places like Haiti, I think it just, you know, it's just really a reflection of my intellectual curiosity, I guess. So, mm -hmm. you know, you hear about that a lot. And it was a place I didn't know anything about. And I was on the first plane I could get on to go there because nice. I was curious and excited to see what it looked like. And, you know, I'll never forget the moment I landed, that kind of thing. So, yeah. so yeah. And then also, you know, you just learn how to work hard and understand something. And so right. Haiti was a complex, mysterious sort of cobweb of political tensions and history and culture. And not a lot of people in the world have ever focused on sort of understanding that place. So here I am, a brand new journalist, and I was literally a bus boy six months before I got there. Yeah. And I had to like learn up fast because everybody around me knew so much more than me. Yeah. What was your best memory of being over there? You know, just the, the people, the, the Haitian culture is amazing. So we think about it as voodoo. That's you know, definitely an element of voodoo yeah. that runs throughout, but that's, you know, just sort of like 
you know, saying that, you know, people are superstitious and, but it's part of their culture. And in some ways it's, it's a very pure culture because they have been closed off historically from the outside world in various ways. And they're, despite, you know, living in the conditions that that they do, this is after all the poorest country in the Western hemisphere by GDP. Hmm. These people know how to have fun. They know how to survive They're They have ingenuity you know, they are great salesmen. And, you know, if your car breaks down in the middle of nowhere, five guys come out and fix it for you. No kidding. So you know, we, cool. we never had to worry. And cars break down all the time. So uh, <laughs> right. so everybody knows how to fix them. So yeah, it was, like I said, this, the people, they're they're amazing. And I think if you, if you know anybody who spent any amount of time there, they'll say pretty much the same thing. I got you. Have you ever gone back? No, sadly, I haven't. I, I left about a year, or I'm sorry, about two years before the earthquake, the big one. Mm. And so, no, I've never had the chance to go back. Life has just kind of kept me moving in, Takes in, over. The, in the forward direction. <laughs> yeah, cool. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. So you're now with SPE. So for you know a lot of the folks that typically you know get their engineering degree, get in the oil field, they're pretty familiar with SPE. But for those who aren't, why don't you describe a little bit about SPE and why people out there should really consider becoming and, and active within the SBE world. Yeah, well, we were talking about that earlier. I, you know, I think that there's a lot of reasons to want to join the SBE. It's, it's, you know, a relatively nominal cost to get, you know, amazing access to the bulk of the industry's knowledge. And mm-hmm. so, I told you our mission statement can be summed up as basically the the idea is to disseminate valuable information to the industry and and to the public to basically help everybody. You know, ri- a rising tide lifts all boats sort mm-hmm. of idea. And I think that the more people that take part in that, that machine gets more powerful. So I'm here to say that as a layman, you know, as a, as a, with no technical background coming into this industry, and I have a before and after with the SBE. So I was in the industry for two and a half years and loosely barely participated in the knowledge sharing that the SBE has to offer and, but worked for, you know, an oil and gas service company that worked, did amazing things offshore. A year after joining the SB as an employee, I had learned more than that entire previous two and a half years. And so you can imagine after about six years of that, you know, I have been able to just tap into a number of different disciplines and really get big pictures and even little nuanced ideas of how people do their jobs and what makes this area of industry so complex. So if somebody like me can come in here and get so much knowledge then I think that, you know, that says a lot about what the, what the machine does for your brain. And right. so I would tell people that we talk about diversity in our, in our internal corporations a lot and in our inter- internal organizations. And the SBE has all of the diversity of the business, mm-hmm. you know, all the diversity of thinking, of culture, of ways of approaching different problems. And if you work it, it'll work for you. Uh, so I tell people, you know, look at the, look at the ROI. Look at how much you you know you spend on your Starbucks coffee every year, <laughs> right. and then ask yourself what do you what do you learn from the cup of uh, you know cappuccino right. versus going to three conferences a year or three one day symposiums a year. Mm-hmm. And I think your ROI is going to be really really good. Yeah, certainly. Well, speaking of symposiums, you're actually like I noticed you're going to be moderating a panel at next month's SPE completion and production symposium. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? That there's some interesting stuff going on in that side of the world. So I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, I was very honored to be selected. I'm the dumbest guy in the room, so they're going to put me at the last <laughs> as the last speaking spot, which was fine by me. Yeah, but there's a lot of great experts on this panel. Actually, this 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 day long symposium, they're going to have it at Core Laboratories here in Houston, and so it's going to have a little both sides of sort of the shale coin. It's going to have completions and production. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I think production doesn't get as much attention as completions, and I'm as guilty as that as anybody. But in shale, everything's so intertwined that you, you almost need to have a show that, that covers both angles there. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be talking about you know something that sort of mixes both, but really it's more on the production side, which is shale EOR. This is a topic that's gained a lot of attention in recent years, really hasn't lost you know any momentum in terms of interest. Right. So we're talking about shale enhanced oil recovery, and it's, it's an emerging area that people have a, a lot of optimism in because essentially... You can go back into these old well bores, and there are thousands of them spread throughout just Texas, you know, tens of thousands of these well bores. Oh, yeah. And you can put something down there and get something back. And so most of what we're talking about is huff and puff, and this is cyclic injection. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, describe that for a lot of people who aren't familiar with yeah, that. Yeah, so if you're not familiar, the, there's various forms of EOR, right? And I won't go into all of them, but the, the predominant method, and this has really been pioneered for shale in the Eagle for Shale here in Texas. And you're talking about taking natural gas from the field and pumping it at high rates into an existing well bore and then letting it, you know, move through the the fracture network to loosen up oil. One way there's different mechanisms, but that's you know essentially what's happening. And then you open the well back up later, you stop injecting, you open it back up and you produce that that oil. So we've seen really, really good results. EOG is sort of the champion of this right now. They're they're the banner, you know, holder here. And they've got hundreds of wells that have been converted. And right. so- Where predominantly? All in Eagleford. Eagleford, yeah. So, th- you know, they may be testing s- elsewhere, but most of this activity is is centered in the Eagleford. And so that's a good question though, because you need to look at it from an oil perspective. First of all, nobody's really trying to do EOR for gas. In fact, they're taking gas and trying to get more oil with it. For sure. But the Bakken is an area where if you look into literature, you're going to see a lot of lot of pilots that date back probably a decade, I think, at least in, in shale. But it's also like sort of the graveyard of, of, of shale EOR pilots, and there's a lot of geologic factors why. But people are still trying to do it. Liberty, based in Denver, has a project going on right now. Liberty, the frat company? Right? No, Liberty, or- the oil company, oh, which, which, oh, oh, which oh. spun off the frat company, right, oh, okay, um, okay. several years ago. But Liberty Oil, they have a project. I believe it's called Kicking Horse. You can look that up. It's it's a private venture. I'm sorry, a joint venture with you know university researchers and NGO researchers on trying to figure out, can we do this in the Bakken using gas. Mm. Hess is going to do something similar. I think they just announced it last week, $8 million grant with the Department of Energy to do like sort of a foam assisted EOR. It's going to have, it's going to have gas and some surfactants in it. Up in the Bakken, obviously. Up in the Bakken. And then, you know, the Permian is where everything's bigger, right? Mm-hmm. Yet we almost don't hear a lot about EOR in the Permian. And a lot of the early activities sort of, or the early interest was dampened by the downturn. Right. So I know university projects were going to go down there and do pilots but they all got canceled when prices dropped. I got you. So the Eagleford though is 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 more mature than the Permian and so it, it it got the benefit of of having operators make those investments early. But essentially again, you know, we're talking about taking gas in most cases, natural gas and putting it in, you leave it in maybe 30 days and then you get, you know, some quantity of oil. And the work in the Eagleford is three or four years old, most of it again by EOG, but there's other people who have joined in 
they haven't run out of cycles as far as the experts can see. So essentially they, they can keep putting the gas down after three years and still get oil out. Wow. So this could change the game. I mean, this, this, this could have the potential of really increasing recovery rates throughout shale. They mm -hmm. just have to figure it out. And the last thing I'll say on this is that you know, keep your eye on Oxy. Yeah. So, so they're going to do, Vicki Holub, actually uh, the CEO of Oxy, just said on their last earnings call that you know in three to four years, they think they're going to have a fully operational commercial EOR program in the Permian. Wow. And well, they're they're doing EOR stuff right now, aren't they? They are. They're 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 doing tests, and you know, and if you think about Oxy's true DNA, it goes all the way back, you know, seventy years or whatever. They they've been doing EOR for a long, long time. Their former CEO Steve Chazen used to say, "We're really a water company," you know, because you know we we're we're doing a lot of water flooding. We produce more water than oil, and they also did a lot of EOR all over the world, and they've also done it with CO2, which is important to, to take into account from a historical perspective. And they just bought a, a giant CO2 dome in the Permian. That's right. So they're they're getting serious and they're going to ramp up, you know, but they're going to take their time to do it. So so watch out for Oxy in the Permian. Right now it's EOG and the Eagleford. It's anybody's guess who figures it out in the Bakken. No kidding. So what would, I mean, obviously there's a pretty bright future for EOR. I mean, are mo a lot of companies behind the scenes really ramping up to go invest or research, you know, the potential upside for this? That's been the big, big bottleneck, right, is the investment. So the, the simplest way to look at it is the shale revolution is a drilling and completions game. And it's also a land game. So, you know, the, one of the ways I, I like to phrase this question is if you could go in the way back time machine, you know, would you, would you start investing in shale EOR earlier knowing what you know now about the technical success and, you know, sort of where the windows in geology that you can go do it? And I think the answer is no, just because the investment cycle, the investment model for the oil and gas industry, the shale oil and gas industry in the United States is very short cycled. Yeah. And these are long cycle investments. So a lot of the experts think that to do it right on a, a large number of wells, you don't even come to the table without $50 million. Well, if you're in 2016 and you're looking and you're an Eagleford operator and you want to expand into the Permian, $50 million could get you a lot of acreage, you know? And so- it could also put some rigs out to work. So you have a choice. Do I invest in compressors, which are four and a half million dollars on the big side and they take a year to build? I need gas infrastructure. Do I want to invest in all of that when I could be drilling new wells that are going to produce a lot more than an EOR well? So, so you have to look at the EOR development from a, the long view. And only now do I think that you're starting to see the shale sector be able to take the long view. I think, and I think that investors are going to sort of allow them eventually to start making these kind of investments. But early on, it's the land rush, right? You're trying yeah. to grow your assets. You're trying to get more land and dedicating an entire investment cycle to shale EOR just wasn't in the playbooks for most people. Now, again, EOG stands out there, but right. the rest of the pack decided that they had to, they had to grow first. Right. Aside from just like commodities, because obviously our, our industry is, is, a function of commodities on how people do their, you know, conduct business. But could EOR potentially get us away from, and again, I'm not a very well-versed in economics, but with if you look at, you know, the top 50 companies, you'll look at the, you know, Wall Street's been beating the crap out of us. I mean, everyone's, their, their stock is down on average, I think like 60%. Would EOR potentially change the way they do business to, to offer up better returns to the investors? Because right now that's a big challenge. I mean, is that, does that even make sense? Is that potentially something that could turn our industry around a little bit? Yeah, I'm watching all of 
that stuff just like you. You know, I'm a spectator on the investor sentiment yeah. uh, environment that's happening in oil and gas right now. It's what's interesting is it's it's never been talked about as much since yeah. I've been in the industry. And so I think though that that right now you're in a, a pretty negative perception cycle, mm-hmm. and that's not going to go away anytime soon. So again, this goes back to who are the who are the operators that are saying publicly that we are in this for the long haul and and stressing that in every interview they give. Yeah. I would look at those people. I would look at those companies and say, those are the ones to keep an eye on and think about, they're thinking about the long cycle. So, so EOR will not save the day tomorrow and it will not change investors' minds probably. I think that's likely to say. Mm-hmm. But if you invest now and then five years from now, you're producing oil for less money than your neighbor, you are going to look very smart. Of course. So yeah, so kind of like, you know, I think a lot of companies have to look past today and say, you know, who do we want to be in five years? And do they, and again, do they want, do we want to be looked at as like, oh, they were so smart for making this investment in 2019. Right. I think we're starting to see evidence of that thinking. So when you, when you talk about like looking forward, actually, I think BP, their CEO on their last earnings call talked about, I want to say it was like a 500 million, that may be the, the incorrect number, but a significant amount going to green energy. You see BP, the forcing that. And is that, you know, maybe because they're, you know, based out of that part of the world where they're making a big push for sort of green energy. But do you see a lot of companies sort of shifting and investing in sort of the green energy part of the stuff? Totally. The question rolling right now is, is this only for the majors? Or yeah. is this going to trickle down to independence? I think I think the answer is going to be uh, yes, at least on the mid cap size of U.S. independence. But obviously, this movement for oil and gas companies of a certain size to start mixing green technologies into their portfolio is really being led by BP and Shell. I always mention this, and, and people find it surprising, but we've written about it. BP and Shell are the largest owners of car electric car charging stations yeah. <laughs> in, in Europe. This this mentality, uh, this model is going to take a long time before we know how successful it is. Mm. But it's being driven, again, going back to investors. There's this thing called the ESG, the Environmental Social Governance Scorecard. And if you have a bad score, investors are going to walk away from you. And there's increasingly less and less, you know, like I said, uh, optimism about how to invest in oil and gas. So, so these companies are saying, you know, we're going to be energy companies for the next hundred years. That mentality is going to, is crossing the Atlantic and you're starting to see Exxon and Chevron talk about low carbon futures and low right. carbon investments. And then let's circle back to Oxy, big independent, right? And they are, they have a low carbon investment fund in the company mm. that, that is investing in CO2 capture and reuse technologies, right. which, you know, and it's fairly active. And some of those technologies are going to go into their EOR program. Mm. So, so you're going to see these large companies with, with a lot of investor, you know, push behind them. You're going to see them transition into a mix and it'll be really interesting to see how, what a, what a low carbon or a zero carbon oil and gas company is. Yeah. Because what that means is they're going have to invest in all these other technologies to offset the emissions that they produce through their normal operations. Right. And I mean, is that, do you think it's, do you think it's, it's obviously feasible from a technical standpoint, but do you think it makes business sense? And do you think, would it cost too much to even get to that point? I mean, I think eventually someone is going to, to make that leap is going to make it happen. But I mean, how practical do you think that is? 
Nobody knows, right? There's a lot of criticism over it and and then there's a lot of praise. So, you know, when somebody hasn't done any, you know, when somebody's doing something that's never been done before, yeah. you kind of have to step back and say, okay, we might have to just watch this one play out. Right. But, but we have to make predictions and guesses too. So I look at it from this point of view is that the industry today is talking a lot about sustainability. In fact, the uh, SPE president right now, that is his mandate to sort of go out in the stump speech and educate oil and gas people around the world on what sustainability means. And, you know, I think that there is a camp within this business that thinks if we do not nail down what that what that question is, what does sustainability look like, then we will increasingly lose the social license to operate in this world. And it won't happen all at once, right? But yeah. it, it'll be death by a thousand cuts. And and you come from up north and We've seen what happens when government takes ownership of the policies that affect oil and gas companies. Now, you can debate rightly or wrongly about things like carbon tax credits, but if the industry doesn't have a hand in sort of allowing or guiding how those things are implemented, because I think a lot of people think they're coming down the pike. But if you you know cross your arms and turn the other way and say, I'm not going to participate in any of this, well, then you lose the right to sort of shape and, and mold how it goes. Yeah. If they take part, if they show the world that we're investing in renewables or green technologies or battery storage, then at least they give themselves a little bit more license to guide this big transition. And again, the, you know, they're, they're, they're not doing these investments right now to become a wind farm company in 10 years. They're, they're doing them so that they can offset their impact and, and continue to have people, you know, believe that the industry is critical to their way of life. You know, a lot of companies are trying to convince you, you know, look at how much energy you use on a daily basis. Yeah. And so they have to do that and they have to show, hey, we, we understand the concerns over climate change. We're, we're going to start changing things. But it, but it goes back to, is this just for the big giant companies? Or can the smaller guys take part in some of these technologies too? And I think you're going to see different technologies be adopted to meet both of those ends. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more with that. So we talked a little bit about Oxy and you posted an article about Anadarko's digital roadmap and how it can potentially offer a template for others. So my question is, you know, what are your thoughts on the sort of Oxy Anadarko and how they're going to be able to merge the the digital roadmap? I mean, because if you look at Anadarko, I mean, they, they built a team, you know, of people, I think it was like 50 people come together, use big data, you know, they outsourced, you know, there was one where they got a Brazilian detective to help create. That was a cool one. Yeah, yeah that was neat. That was right at the end of the article. And, and you, that was something you mentioned on, on your LinkedIn post. But I didn't realize how many companies that had nothing to do with oil and gas that they brought in to help create these programs and these systems and this, you know, this software if you will, and, and to, to help them make decisions and, and be able to analyze data from a completely different perspective. You don't hear Oxy talk about that too much, but I mean, I would imagine that Oxy was smart enough to be able to identify what kind of value it brought. I mean, what are your thoughts on them being able to sort of integrate that culture? You know, there's, you know, there's an opacity to these, to these mergers and acquisitions, and I am not one of the lucky ones that can see through it. And so <laughs> I had, so I have really no idea what yeah. uh, Oxy's intentions are, but what we're talking about is the Anadarko's digital transformation experiment. And yeah. so they had an analytics team in their building. They sort of created a new environment for data scientists, software developers, and petrotechnicals to work together on the same problems. 
And, you know, they delivered a lot of interesting, you know, kind of apps and tools and solutions. The one that we were, we were laughing about was that they had a Brazilian detective through crowdsourcing develop a algorithm or an automated way to read mud logs, to look mm-hmm. for gas shows, you know, and, yeah. and, oh, maybe we missed a pay zone. And this guy had, uh, was a forensics expert. And so he had been developing an algorithm for himself to look for fake checks, and so he just, you know, submitted a proposal through a, a crowdsource, you know, developing website. I think, you know, probably a hundred other people did too, but his was the best. Mm. You know, his scored the highest. And so he developed, you know, a foundation for this automated tool that's now reviewed over 50 or 60,000 mud logs within Anadarko. And that's just one example of dozens of little things that they outsource to the crowd and they did it just to become efficient. You know, it, it sounds cool and it is cool. It was actually like the, one of the smallest pieces of their digital pyramid, if you will. You know, maybe 10, 20% of the work was outsourced or, or less than that. But the, it was just so nifty that they could go and put out these questions to people who had no exposure to oil and gas pretty much and get back solutions in days in some cases and for, you know, a few thousand dollars. And, mm-hmm. and if, anybody, if anybody listening has ever worked in a big organization, you probably know how much your staff hours cost. And for a lot of people, it's like a hundred bucks an hour. And so you could rack up staff time trying to develop one component of a big software, or you could just outsource it and have people from Ukraine, Russia, Brazil, China, you know, anywhere really mm-hmm. develop it for you. Right. And actually, like I said, you got a hundred of them, you get to pick the best one. So yep. you get to find the Einstein. So that's pretty cool. But, you know, in general, you know, they're, they're just an example of a company that really tried to figure out how, how do we become a digital oil and gas company? I'm here to say that, that, that there is really no one answer and their, their model is there and people can learn from it. And maybe Oxy will adopt it, but maybe Oxy's got its own philosophy. And I think that's also important to mention here is that Exxon's got a philosophy and Shell's got one. Mm-hmm. They're not the same. And, and they don't necessarily have to be because nobody knows how to do this. This is yeah. also brand new. Nobody knows how to transform an oil and gas company because it hasn't really happened yet. Right. Well, the interesting part is, you know, I deal with a lot of operators within my career. And, you know, one specifically comes to mind is talking to an engineer and he said, yeah, you know, this whole digitalization that oh, everyone's pushing it, pushing it. Well, he got an email from one of their upper management saying, hey, we just signed a contract with this big software company out of Silicon Valley. We're not exactly sure what it's going to do, but prove that it's going to create value for us and work with them. And he was like, okay, I have all this data and I have this software company, but like, how do I, like, what can I do with it? And so I think that's a lot of the question right now that I'm hearing is like, we have all this data, we have this cool software and people that understand how to, you know, combine it and, and create algorithms and do whatever. And I'm by no means a data scientist. I'm just a dumb roughneck from Alberta. So sometimes my terminology may be off, but to try and understand how to actually use this and, and, and to where it can create value for the company. And then either be able to analyze things from a different perspective or just become more efficient at, you know, analyzing a huge data set, which normally might take two weeks. You can analyze it in a day, which I think is the important part. It's just being able to, you know, make faster decisions and, and, and essentially become real time to be able to make those big decisions. But again, the, I think the biggest challenge is, is figuring out how to use the, the two pieces, the debate, the data that we have, and these are software companies to, to kind of bring it together and, and create something that essentially is going to 
make it better for the company, which, yeah, is, I, which is tough. I get what you're saying. And, and basically, what, what are these, you know, these insights that we always talk about when we talk about machine learning or AI? And you know, we, we have seen some like uh, big aha moments that have been delivered by these programs, but it's such an early phase. Yeah. So uh, you know, I think that you know, if you are hoping that in the next year that you're looking at a sci- sci-fi esque you know oil and gas industry, you're not going to you're not going to see it yet because trial and error is still taking place in earnest. And so some of these software companies will find that they do bring value to the oil and gas companies. Some will be shown the door. And you know people call that kind of the, the dust settling period before we know that the winners are losers. The dust is still in the air right now, but it's, you know, there, there are cases where you can find people who I think are, are doing fairly well. Look to the seismic space for that. When we talk about big data, that's historically like the number one source of big data for oil and gas. Seismic is just an area that not not all petroleum engineers touch, but it's such a massive and laborious data set to work through. Mm-hmm. And even even with Anadarko in that story, we talk about you know new interpretation programs. I mean, people are cutting down work. It's not hyperbole, but people are are cutting down work that used to take months yep. and doing it in, in in days. And there are some cases where they're doing it in seconds in real time. So Anadarko is working with a, a company called Blueware. Which you know is is allowing people to process seismic data in the cloud rapidly, and you know if you never touch seismic, it's kind of hard to appreciate. If you talk to the people that that have, that it's a huge breakthrough for them. For sure, no, that's super interesting. Well, we're coming up to, to 35, 40 minutes here, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. But one of the questions I, I like to kind of get a little more personal towards the end. But what is it about your job and like sort of the, the writing and stuff that you're doing that that keeps you coming every single day? I mean, you know, to because. Oil and gas is constantly, we are constantly bombarded by information, by news, new technology. But I mean, what what really keeps you coming and motivated to, to keep diving into the guts of all of this? Yeah, I'll go back and plug the SB again. Just, you know, I'm, I'm naturally curious about life and science and, and the earth. And, and I really have a lot of, I guess, respect for this business and what it does in the subsurface. You know, somebody once described it to me this way. You know, in, in an assembly line, you can see from one end to the other. You can see how the cars are made. In oil and gas, we're building the assembly line, you know, in the dark. And, <laughs> yeah. and I think that just that challenge is, is very appealing. And the ability for me to go and pick a topic or have a topic come to me and then get to deep dive into it for weeks or, you know, even just a few days and sometimes, that's really a privilege. And so I'm very honored that I get to pick up the phone and talk to experts all over the world. No kidding. And they'll they'll share their insights with me so that I can feed them back to other people. And I always tell pe- people this, that, and I know others say this, but the idea is with, with what we do is we take complex topics and make them simple and digestible because we know that there are so many silos of disciplines in this business. And if I talk about seismic, I may lose your attention. But, <laughs> right. but, but if, maybe if I simplify it and tell you it in a, uh, you know, a different way, you'll, you'll be interested. Most or at definitely. least as interested as I am. So. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, it's, it's, this is a vastly educational industry. And I'm here just to soak up as much as I can for as long as I can. Right. Well, with regards to there being, you know, probably a million different topics, what topic are you most passionate about? If you could stand in front of people and talk about it within oil and gas, what topic would that be? You know, people that know me pretty well would, they'll call me out if I don't say this, but it's uh, frack hits. And 
otherwise known as fracture-driven interactions. And okay. this is the effect of when you w- that we're getting as shale producers put their wells closer and closer together, and you put a lot of pressure down there and, and pressurized fluids during hydraulic fracturing, mm-hmm. and the fractures will actually interact between the other wells. And in some cases, this is okay. In some cases, it, it produces more oil and gas. In a lot of cases, it harms production. So figuring out those physics and those dynamics and how to stop it and what to do, and maybe you don't want to stop it, maybe you want to live with it, and the the amount of stuff that oil and gas companies are throwing at the wall to solve this problem is impressive. And, no kidding. And so the the it's it's driving a whole new area of technology. I think. Okay. So I've been writing a lot about that and covering like different nuances of that topic, and I think you know it's just a fascinating example of how complex. The subsurfaces and especially shale reservoirs. So, are there any leaders in that space, or any any one particular, or any technology that's kind of helped the evolution of this challenge? Yeah, I'll be writing a, a little bit about this actually as soon as I leave here. But we have a story coming out next month that's talking about what a lot of a subset of the operators are doing in different shale plays. And I'll say this: that it looks like one of the best technologies right now is is wellhead pressure monitoring, which is not a new he- new technology. Downhole gauges too. Yeah. And by placing these in every well in the vicinity of a frac job, you can essentially watch how the wells talk to each other. Wow. And and so you know, I'm, I'm drawing as I say that I'm drawing pictures of like whales going. Woo! You know, but it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, you're, you're seeing like, oh, is this one talking a lot to the other one? Or, and this one's not talking at all. Why is that? Oh, look, they're all talking, but they're talking at different volumes. Wow. So that, that is uh, getting down into reservoir science, reservoir engineering. And the amount of things that people are learning from that is, is just, like I said, really amazing. Every time I go and talk to people doing this, studying this, they have something new to say. Interesting. Uh, so I would imagine machine learning would play a big part into something like this. It, it is. But the counterintuitive part to that is that that we haven't, as an industry, the Royal We, people have not been collecting high quality data and, uh, and high enough resolutions for long enough time. Gotcha. So actually, it's, it's sort of been a roadblock for machine learning in this regard. Now that people are collecting very high quality data sets all across different shale plays in the U.S. and Canada, mm-hmm. machine learning is going to have a, a big role. And, and going back to the pressure gauges that I just told you about, if you can think about these slopes that the pressure makes, you know, the ups and downs on a, on a chart then you can recognize those those signatures and say, okay, this kind of frac hit or fracture-driven interaction historically isn't that bad for my well. So keep pumping or this pump rate's just fine. Yeah. Then you see a signal and you're saying, oops, that looks like a warning sign. Well, humans could do this, but you'd have to stare at the screen and learn this by yourself. Or you can have all of your completions engineers teach the machine what these slopes are. And then as the feed of data comes in from the frac fan, and the offset wells, the, the signatures are automatically recognized. And now mm. you know what's happening, and maybe you can link that to a decision tree, and maybe you can link that decision tree to an automated process as well. Yeah. And so that's, that's you know, people were talking about that. that. That concept is in the works, and several people are trying to race, and there are operators and there's technology developers trying to race to get to that, that uh, level. And then we'll really be looking at the subsurface, the frac job in real time and trying to understand what does it mean in the reservoir, which, you know, has not been possible until 
you know, until recently. Wow. That's a, that's a huge potential for change in the game. And uh, I'm glad you touched on it. I, I, I really had no idea. I mean, I'm, again, I kind of pigeonhole myself into the drilling world. So it's nice to be able to come and sit and discuss, you know, things like that with you. Cause it's, it's not too much. You hear about that. Yeah. Online. If you stuck around at the end of the podcast, you just learned something really cool. Yeah, no kidding. And I'm sure they will. So again, one more question I do have is what's something about you that not many people know about? You got any good hidden secrets you'd like to unleash to the podcast world? A hidden secret. So I thought about this because I heard you ask it on another podcast yeah. and I didn't want to get stumped. Uh, my hidden secret is that I, I not only believe in aliens, but I think we're going to find them. Yeah. And so like, uh, I, I, you know, if I, if I could be in any other profession, it would be like sort of, you know, maybe like uh, Elon Musk, right-hand man at SpaceX or something. I, oh, you know, no I, would, I would really love to to get on one of his rockets someday. You know, we got we got all this stuff going on, looking for life in Mars. And and I think we may find aliens one day and, and microbes. But there's this thing called, there's a star out there, a tabby star. So go yeah. look it up. And about a couple of years ago, it started, you know, showing some weird signs. It was actually dimming. And people thought that aliens were building a giant solar you know, array around the sun to take all of its energy and no way. put it into their super machines and, and be a master alien race. What? I bought into this thing and like, I'm still sort of into it. So that until, until awesome. they can prove that aliens are not building a giant solar array around this tabby star, then, you know, I'm going to be on the, on the spaceship bandwagon. No kidding. It's so funny you say that because the, the first dream I ever had, and I, I don't know why I tell this, but is was me in, in a rocket ship going into outer space. And so I've always been fascinated with space. And anytime on Netflix, there comes out with like a new outer space or like the black hole, you know, any documentaries like that. It's just like this, this, this rabbit hole that I just keep going down and down. And I don't have as much time to dig into it as much as I'd like. But yeah, that topic is super interesting. And, and my answer to, you know, whether aliens exist, it's like, you can't tell me in our whole universe that we're the only ones that just like magically appeared. And so, yeah, there, there has to be something out there. And so I've, I've yet to see a UFO that I, you know, so, but I, I don't know, have you seen a UFO or anything like no, personally no. that you've I mean, seen? Uh, yeah. My dream is to see a rocket. I live, we live in space city, right? And yeah. I've never seen a rocket go up and, and I'm, and I missed out on the chance to go see a shuttle launch a long time ago. I, I, I was going to go. Yeah. But so that's my dream is this is to actually see a rocket launch and then maybe be on one, one yeah. day. But no, no, I haven't, any, I haven't ever seen a UFO and, and I'm, and I'm, I'm buying into the Stephen Hawking's theory, which is we, we're not really ready to meet the aliens. They might, you know, annihilate us. Like, uh, so, so I want to hold off. Maybe we'll be the aliens like in Star Trek and yeah. we'll go visit <laughs> the other people. I think that's the safer way to go. Probably. Right. Isn't there a, a, a buddy I work with mentioned to me there, isn't there a rocket ship that's like continuing to go into outer space, outer space that has like either drawings or these sounds that they're trying to be able to communicate with aliens, isn't that? Yeah, so that's either you're going to test my my knowledge here. It's either it's either Voyager or Viking. I think it's Voyager. So yeah, they both had maps, yeah, celestial that's maps, what it was. Bad, yeah. which, which somebody's like bad idea. They just you know <laughs> showed the the aliens from Independence Day how to get here, but they also have like recordings, big gold records with voices from all over the world, every language, and it's basically like a, a giant time capsule. And so there's actually been like sci-fi movies where aliens find the space probe and then like bring it back. And of course, you know, it's like covered with an alien disease and we turn into the alien. So, okay. you know, so, so it's, it's, it's a fascinating topic, but yeah, they've left the solar system. They're the only thing that's so uh, crazy. That's, that's out there. There's two of them. And they, they're able to communicate with it from earth, right? Or no? Yeah. They're using the, I think it's the deep space network and they ping uh, signals back and eventually we will not hear from them, but I think that we're still hearing from them. That is they're still saying telemetry back. Crazy. So if Elon Musk ever listens to this, Trent here, 
here wants to hop on a, a rocket. So well, and hook he, him up. And he went the other way. He put a car around the sun. I think yeah. I just heard that it orbited the sun or something like that. Oh, or nice. It's in, yeah. it's in sun orbit. His Tesla. As goofy as he is, he comes up with some fascinating ideas and, and he's breaking, you know, he, he's definitely pushing the envelope with regards to a lot of cool stuff. So yeah. anyway, uh, that was a great answer. Probably one of the neatest ones yet. Well, look, everyone, I just want to take a moment to tell everyone about our upcoming events. Hey guys, this is Alex, and here are the events on deck for September 2019. We are bringing Oil & Gas Tech Podcast to the Internet of Things Conference in Houston, Texas on September 16th through 17th. Joining us will be CEO Marty Sprintson of Vantique. You can register online at iotandoilandgas.com. The Midstream Networking Golf Tournament will be held on September 6, 2019 in Cypress, Texas, and the dress, of course, is golf attire. The NOV Sporting Clays Tournament will be on September 20th, 2019 in Katy, Texas. Dress is casual. The Blockchain and Oil and Gas Conference is in Houston, Texas on September 18th through 19th. And the dress is business casual. That's all for September. Hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. Awesome. Thanks. I also want to mention the OKC Fin Feather and Fur, which will be happening Friday, October 11th at Heritage Place, Oklahoma City. It's relatively new for the Oklahoma region. So uh, go and show them some love. Head on to the AADE website or hit up Courtney Strang with Inwell for more details. Anyone out there interested in old field hockey, come join the Hack and Whack crew for some old timer hockey. We do it every two weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. And if you're looking to get in shape for back to school or this fall, visit KTX Fit in Katy, Texas and get a free trial by telling one of the coaches I sent you. Everyone out there, thanks for listening to Oil & Gas Onshore. If you're looking for more info, hit up oilandgasonshore.com. Trent, it's been an absolute pleasure today. Great conversation. I'm looking forward to the release of this one. Are there any links or any sort of avenues that we can tell the listeners where to find you, more about or any topics? I mean, what's the best way to reach out to you or SPE? I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. And please go visit JPT and just Google SPE JPT and you'll find some of our very best work there. Perfect. We'll make sure and put all those links in the show notes. Thanks. All right, everyone. That's a wrap. And always remember when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Tune in next week for another captivating episode of Tendeka's Oil & Gas Onshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasglobalnetwork.com. 